And this is NPR News. I'm Mike Mulcahy. Thanks so much for tuning in today. The Republican State Convention is just a month away. That's where about 2,200 delegates will meet to endorse a candidate for governor. And because all of the major candidates say they will abide by that endorsement and not run in a primary, that endorsed candidate will run against incumbent DFL Governor Tim Walls in November. Starting today and leading up to the convention, we are going to talk to some of those Republican candidates as part of our Meet the Candidates series. First up is State Senator Paul Gazelka of East Gull Lake. He's the former Senate Majority Leader. He stepped down from that post to make his run for governor. Senator Paul Gazelka joins us now. Senator, thanks for coming on. Mike, it's great to be on your show. Well, let's start with the big question. Why do you want to be governor? Well, our, our state is completely off track because of Tim Walls. So whether it's uh, the streets and lawlessness or frustrations of parents with education, not knowing what's going on or having closed them for so long with no real opportunities and, and people falling behind there, or the fact that uh, our economy's got to get back on track. I, I realize we've spent trillions and trillions of dollars uh, nationwide, but it's, it's caused 8% inflation, and people are frustrated. They're frustrated with uh, wanting to make sure that we have fair elections. They're frustrated with wanting to make sure that their, their liberties are protected. And we have an opportunity as Republicans to win House, Senate, and Governor all at the same time. And we have not done that for about 55 years. Well, a lot to unpack there, but uh, let's uh, start with uh, part of the pitch you've been making. Uh, you say that you've been at the table. You've negotiated big issues with Tim Walls and before that with Mark Dayton. Um, some of your opponents say you're too willing to compromise or you've been too willing to compromise. Uh, how do you respond to that? Well, first of all, in divided government, uh, it's even more difficult. And uh, prior to Virginia, we were the only divided legislature in the whole country. And in Minnesota, you have to pass a two-year budget that balances. Every two years, you got to pass it. And you can't just uh, do nothing. And so you have to compromise on some of those things. But uh, we protected core Republican values, and, and that's, I think, what people need to know as well. But the experience really, really matters. I mean, when people say that they can just day one come and become, become governor when they've really done nothing in, in the political arena, that's a huge mistake. And I, I'm a lifelong successful business person. I have had my own insurance agency. I've been a manager. I've been an executive. But the real skill of governing our state came when I was leader of the Senate. And both Benson and Jensen picked me to be that leader multiple times. Well, with all that experience, should you should you be running away with this thing? No, I think there's a real mood of uh, just being frustrated with anybody that's in government right now. And, but I, and that's where I make the case that as people settle into it and think about, do you want somebody that's running something that they have no experience doing? And, and that's what I believe is going to happen in the end. I believe in the end people will recognize that you can't just come in brand new and think you're going to do anything. And, you know, they point to Trump. And, you know, I've, I've spent a little bit of time with Trump, and I think most people acknowledge that he was one of a kind. Whether you liked him or didn't like him, nobody's like Trump. Um, you mentioned uh, the governor's uh, COVID restrictions. Um should the governor, any governor this is, have any emergency powers? They should be limited. And that's something, you know, in the Senate, we passed a bill that said you only get 30 days. And if the House and Senate agree to continue them, you can. And, you know, a governor, if it's an emergency, he can call a special session, bring the House and Senate together. And if it's an emergency, Democrats and Republicans in Minnesota will come together. And so, we do need to take a look at reforming them. I, I think it's a good idea. Think about all the decisions he made on his own, whether it was closing schools or churches or businesses, uh, forcing masks, uh, all of the things that were one person deciding. I don't think that's good government. But you could envision a scenario under which you would use emergency powers as governor to protect the health and safety of Minnesotans. Not the way he did it. And, you know, I was uh, front page of the Star Tribune uh, four or five months into the pandemic, uh, trusting the people to make more decisions on their own. And I, John Hopkins University, within the last few months, did a study 
and basically said that lockdowns did not make a difference. And I remember early uh, when the governor made the decision to lock down everyone uh, in a Zoom, I said, Governor, that's a big mistake because there were so many other things we had to measure, kids' education and mental health, the economy and what it would do for them, drug addiction. I mean, all of the different things that were going to be impacted besides COVID. And I always said COVID was was serious if you were older. I, I never said that. It's just when you force people and take away their liberty that you have a major problem. And other states that didn't do that fared better than Minnesota, and the people were a lot happier being able to make their own decisions. Some states, though, that, that didn't do that had higher higher death rates. By, by very little difference. So Wisconsin, for example, the, the governor wanted to do the same thing, the Democrat governor, but his courts would not let him. And the numbers are virtually the same as far as hospitalization rates or death rates. But the economy or kids' education or spiritual well-being of the communities, those are all better. And that's the part where, you know, that's why I said we have to be able to look at these things, yeah, not in just one, uh, one part of it, but the entire impact that it's going to have. Suicide rates were way up, a depression way up, kids' education and their, what they learned way down. And, and, you know, these are difficult decisions, but I, I would have made them differently, and I said that early. Another issue, you got a big endorsement this week um, from the Minnesota Police and Peace Officers Association. What have you promised them that you would do about public safety? Well, what I've been talking about the last couple of years, I, you know, that we would not defund the police like at first every Minneapolis City Council member said they would do. I always said that is a bad idea. We need to make sure they have the tools and resources that they need to do their job. I always said that we would not take qualified immunity away from them, which would basically drive more police out of the profession. And this year I'm talking about we've got to have, I know that we're going to have to pay police more because we are significantly short on the number of police out there. And so hiring bonuses for new police, retention bonuses for people, for police to stay a little longer when they could retire. And we need to get tougher on the criminal. We're we're somewhere around the 49th state for least amount of jail time. And so I, I'm talking about two different bills that I put in the Senate. One is uh, if you're carjacking, you're going to go to jail. And if you're a felon with a gun and you have a second felony with a gun, minimum jail time of five years. You don't get to be let out. And that one I got from talking to a, a, a black community pastor in, in the Minneapolis, North Minneapolis area, he was the one that gave me that idea. Nobody that is bent on crime should be able to take a walk. The state has that big $9 billion surplus. Uh, you and other Republicans in the Senate have proposed an income tax rate cut and eliminating the taxes on Social Security. Uh, let's say if a big tax cut passes this year, would you propose another tax cut next year if you're governor? It depends how much spending we can reduce. And, and that's what we'll take a look at. I mean, I want to look at every single agency, every single board for their effectiveness. Are we spending the money in the way we should? Uh, in 2011, we had passed uh, language that was called the Sunset Commission to look at every agency, every board, over a 10-year period. And when Democrats got House, Senate, and Governor, they, the only thing they got rid of was the Sunset Commission. So I really want to take a look at every part of our, of our government. I want it to be uh, efficient. I want to make sure that it's doing, doing the things that they need to do. But if we can save money, that should go back to the taxpayer. And any ideas now where you would cut spending if you were governor? Uh, yes, but I, I don't really want to talk about that at this point. I, the, the big issues that I think most people care about right now, one is public safety. They want to make sure that their kids are safe in the streets and that they can go to their business or they can go to theater or game and, and feel safe. The second one is education, and it's a desire. Uh, if you're talking about you know, parents in Minneapolis and St. Paul, more and more parents uh, of minority communities are saying our kids need more choices. Their, their schools are not meeting their needs. And, the, and across the state, people are frustrated about what is being taught in schools. And I want to make sure that parents have more access to the curriculum. So education is a big piece. And then, like I mentioned, the economy. And 
we want to make sure that we're not uh, overburdening some of our small businesses with with mandated uh, requirements when they are struggling right now. So getting the economy going, having good education for our kids, and then making sure the streets are safe, that's what people want to talk about. Well, yeah, but you're going to have a lot of issues on your desk if you're governor. Um, and is it fair to say you're just not going to talk about where you would cut spending if, you, if you're proposing a big tax cut? Well, if I'm talking about looking at every agency, that's kind of your first step is, is what, who is doing what, and are we getting the bang for the buck that we want? Are, what regulations are we requiring that maybe we don't need to have uh, to make whether you're an individual, a business, uh, an educator, medical profession, churches? I mean, just looking at what is it that we're doing that, is, that still makes sense. And because we haven't been willing to look at that, that's kind of the first step is how do we start looking at where are we spending our money, uh, how many employees have we added at the state level, they're called FTEs or full-time employees. How many of those are not even filled, but those dollars are going to those agencies? And so that's what we'll, we'll start looking at. Uh, you know, the governor of Oklahoma signed a bill this year that makes performing an abortion a felony. Uh, the other Republican governors, Florida, have signed uh, restrictions on abortion. Uh, what restrictions would you sign? Would you sign bills like that if you're governor? So I'm pro-life. Uh, I've defended life from uh, conception to natural death. I've really tried to work on the the uh, pro-life legislation that people uh, all would agree to. And so, for example, the parents' right to know if their child is pregnant so that they can help them navigate through that. A woman's right to know, which means she can have an ultrasound to make sure she, if she's going to have an abortion, she wants an ultrasound so she can actually see what's in her womb. Things like that is what we've been doing over the years, Positive Alternative Act, creating uh, resources for pregnancy centers for, if, you know, for, to help women bring their baby to term and then help them in their mothering. In Minnesota, we have Doe versus Gomez. It's a court ruling from 1995 that if Roe v. Wade goes away at the federal level, it's still in place here. And I don't believe that... Uh, I believe at, at this present time that that would then be un, unconstitutional. Uh, but I am working towards uh, protecting and valuing life. And I think ultimately it's winning the hearts and minds of people first. And that's that's what I want to do. Uh, you mentioned earlier uh, election security. Was the 2020 presidential election fair? Was the election stolen from Donald Trump? You know, I, I focused on Minnesota. That was where I was responsible and there are definitely things that I don't think were fair. I think there was intentional uh, big tech uh, filtering out stories of Hunter Biden, for example. They admitted to it after the election. I think sometimes the media went you know, pretty aggressively against Trump, but not against Biden. I think mail-in ballots are ripe for fraud, but it's, it's difficult to prove. And I, I think we need to clean up and, and make that tighter um, so that's where I, I focused on is Minnesota. In Minnesota, I, I believe that uh, Biden won in Minnesota. Uh, beyond that, I can't. Uh, uh, I, I don't. I'm not an expert, and I follow the um, electoral college process. That's what you have in really close elections, and across the state, across the country, uh, the electoral college verified uh, that Biden was going to be president, and that happened December sixth, and. I've accepted that. I don't like it. I'm going to do everything I can to make sure people feel that their elections are, are safe and secure. And one of those things that we push for is voter ID for voting. I, why people think that's a bad idea, really, I, I just wonder, why do you think that's a bad idea? And we promise to give uh, IDs free to anybody that can't afford it because it's, it's not about disenfranchising voters. It's making sure every vote is a, is a valid vote. Senator Paul Gazelka, one of the candidates seeking the Republican endorsement for governor, thanks for coming on today. Absolutely. We'll talk again. I hope so. Thanks. This is NPR News. I'm Mike Mulcahy. We're going to continue with another of the Republicans seeking the party endorsement to run against DFLer Tim Walls in November. Kendall Qualls is a former business executive and an Army veteran. He ran unsuccessfully in 2020 for Congress in the 3rd District, and he joins me now. Kendall Qualls, thanks for being here. Mike, thanks for having me on. Uh, start with the big question. Why do you want to be governor? 
Well, we, we are actually in a crisis right now, and typically in a crisis, you typically need leaders from outside whatever organizations that's having the crisis to come in and ter- help turn it around and fix it. Um, what's going on right now with crime in our streets, I mean, in fact, we didn't even used to live like this literally three to four years ago. And uh, the crimes that's happening, not only in the Twin Cities, but they're permeating beyond the Twin Cities uh, in, across Minnesota. The second thing, we, we have people that have grown up here in Minnesota, or leaving the state they love, the state they helped build in record numbers, the highest number in 30 years that are leaving the state. And they're doing so because of the heavy tax burden. We have businesses that are no longer investing in our, in our state. The businesses that are remaining here, they're investing in outside the, the state of Minnesota and small businesses leaving. So we're, we're in a crisis. I believe I can help us win in, in a wide margin of victory. Well, let's talk a little bit about the tax plan that you have uh, proposed, at least in broad terms. You say you want to reduce the number of income tax brackets from four to two and then tax the lower bracket at 3% and the upper bracket at 6%. In dollar terms, how big of a tax cut would that be? Well, here's, here's the scenario. What, what, we're, what we're putting forward is that whether your, your personal income taxes, your business tax, that everyone in the state will receive a tax cut as long overdue. We are no longer competitive in the region. So what we're doing with this tax plan is ensuring that the state is competitive, not just regionally, but nationally, and that give reasons for businesses to stay and invest in, in our state. Uh, like I said, it's long overdue. In fact, the surplus that we have, this nearly $10 billion surplus, is indicative of, of the uh, overtaxation. Hmm. Uh, but but it would be a tax cut that you're proposing, and wouldn't that trigger, you know, once the 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 surplus is dealt with this session, presumably, wouldn't that trigger some fairly big cuts in state spending? And and what are you looking at to cut? Well, I tell you, what, one of the things we're looking at cutting is the fraud, Mike. When you think about one program, the Feed Our Future program, that was a quarter of a billion dollars. I think we can start there. That was federal Again, money, though, wasn't it? One program. That was money and, and, coming and from the federal not, government. And it's not the only. It has not been the only one that we've seen over the last several years. Mm-hmm. Is there any place you think where the state needs to spend more money? Uh, yes, absolutely, in law enforcement. And how much more? What What would you do to to stop the rise in violent crime? Because it's not just happening here. I mean, it's happening in big cities across the country, right? Well, this is happening in big Democrat cities, Mike. So let's be specific, really. This is happening in Democrat-led cities, but it didn't used to happen here. Let me give your listeners a concept of what we're going to do, what the vision that we're casting with our administration. In October 2009, Forbes magazine surveyed the entire country, major cities, of the, of the major cities on quality of life as well as safety. In the, and they ranked ordered the major cities, and Minneapolis, Minneapolis was rated number one as the biggest safe city in the country. It was on the cover of their magazine. We're getting that back in 18 months. And how would you do that? Uh, we're going to, uh, first of all, I've been interviewing uh, commissioners of public safety, so these are the of the highest ranking uh, law enforcement officers, uniform law enforcement officers in the state. Um, we will hire at the state level three to 400 and more if we need them at the state level. And the commissioner will organize these men and women into task force and deploy them in the Twin Cities as well as other cities around the state as needed. So you would have a sort of a state, would it be an expanded state patrol? How would that work? Well, that will be that'll be actually executed by the Commissioner of Public Safety. They will organize those in the task force just like they do today. In fact, these task forces are organized for drug enforcement, human trafficking, and across different jurisdictions. Uh, this is happening today at the state level, uh, um, city as well as county, and even some in some cases federal uh, officers um, that were happening today in, in task force, as I mentioned. So the key is, look, the, the number one priority for elected officials is the safety of its citizens. Our Twin City mayors have failed. 
our governor has failed in protecting its citizens. That's the number one job, and that's the number one priority we need to take care of. Um, You're the only black person in the campaign. You've said you don't believe in the idea of systemic racism. What do you think is behind the disparities we see, um, economic disparities in particular, between people of color in Minnesota and and the white majority? And, And what would you do as governor to try to close some of those gaps? Well, um, so let me put this in context for your listeners. My parents, as well as my in-laws, grew up in the segregated Jim Crow South when the country was sanctioned segregation, systemic racism. A lot has changed since the 50s and 60s in our country. And I tell people this. My parents and grandparents would love, have loved, have grown up in the America that I grew up in. It is not the same. The disparities that we have today is what I call the cultural genocide that happened 50 years ago when government programs, social welfare programs, initiated a program where benefits would be paid out, social welfare benefits, and housing would be paid out as long as the husband or father wasn't in the home. It started in the mid-60s and accelerated in the late 60s and 70s. At that time... 80% of black families were two-parent families. And we've gone from 80% two-parent families to 80% fatherless homes in my lifetime. And Mike, there has not been one initiative, one national initiative to reverse the trend. It is is if this is like normal, Hmm. and it's not. And so, in fact, I started last year helping. I went into the black community of the Twin Cities and helping and recruiting volunteers to help turn the culture around to normalcy because this is not normal. And, and, you know, the data is there and you you know, this data as well as I do children, regardless of race that grow up in fatherless homes are seven times more likely to fail academically to 20 times more likely to go to prison. These are all the stats that president Obama mentioned. No other culture in the world lives as if it's normal when 50% or more of the, of the children grow up in fatherless homes. And so we're going to address that. So that's, that's the driver of the disparities of, of uh, law enforcement disparity, of academic disparity, financial disparities. In fact, Mike, if you look at the data, when you look at two-parent black families, the disparities that we, what we all see in the journal, those, dis, those diminish to normalcy of a, of a, of a randomized bell-shaped curve of the normal population. Hmm. Um, you have called for a photo ID requirement. Was the 2020 election fair? Was it stolen from Donald Trump? So a couple of things. Um, I think when you look at national surveys across the board, Republicans or Democrats, they believe the vast majority, 70 percent or more, believe that uh, some type of photo ID should be used when voting. And, and, Mike, we have, we have a record here. We have a record on record right, right now. We have two things that could be, should be concerning majority of your listeners. The DFL, this past February, this year, they invited felons and non-citizens to caucus with them and in, in, in leading up to the, uh, the election process, kicking off the election process for this year. It, it was an, inv- an open invite. Um, they put it in a press release. They put it in their, their social media. Hey, not only do we want uh, the citizens vote with us, but felons and, uh, and non-citizens. So particular, you know, potentially standing in line at the caucus could be someone that's a U.S. citizen that was a victim of a crime, a hijacking crime, and behind that person could have been the person that hijacked your mother or your grandmother, carjacked so, them. So was the election fair or, or not? Well, you know what? You know, here's the end of the day. There's been no statement from me that says that Biden is an uh, illegitimate president. None. But, Mike, here's something I want you and your colleagues to do. Hmm. Ask those same questions of the other side, because mm-hmm. to this very day, Stacey Abrams testifies that she was elected the legitimately queen of Georgia, if you will. And no one has ever asked the question you're asking me. If I ever get the chance to talk to her, I will, and I'll talk to uh, DFL officials here and ask them that, too. Kendall Qualls, thanks so much for coming on today. Thank you. Bye. 
Kendall Qualls is one of the candidates seeking the Republican endorsement for governor, and we're talking to uh, some of them today because the convention is just just about a month away. And joining me now is uh, State Senator Michelle Benson, who's also running. Senator Benson, thanks for coming on. I'm really excited to be here. Thanks for the invitation. Well, let me start with the big question. Why do you want to be governor? Because I see amazing potential in our people and in our state. We have innovators for generations who've helped build some of the greatest companies. We used to be a world leader both in healthcare and in education. We have great natural resources, and we're a place that can develop those natural resources with respectful labor practices, with good environmental policy. But most importantly, if our communities are safe, and we have high-quality education, our people will thrive. So let's improve public safety, improve our education system, reduce the cost of everything. Inflation's killing Minnesota families. Make it easier to start those businesses so that we have a bright future for everyone who chooses to live and work and raise their family in the state of Minnesota. How would you improve education? I think right now parental choice is really important. We saw, I have a friend who's in the Lakeville School District. April 14th was the first day since the pandemic started that he was allowed to go in his classroom to read with his kids. Our public education system has been moved away from the core function of helping parents educate their children into a level of activism. And so letting money follow the child so that those kids in Minneapolis, who have schools with terrible reading scores and literacy rates, those kids get a chance to go to a school where they have a real shot at learning to read, learning math, graduating, so that those families are supported in a place that they chose for their child. So, And yeah, let's okay. also refocus on fundamentals, high standards, no excuses. The science of reading is proven to work. Roger Chamberlain in the Senate, and with my full support, has moved the science of reading to the front of the conversation, literacy to the front of the conversation. This is where education solutions will come from, not the same bureaucracy that has led us with the nation's largest opportunity gap. So Our are, kids aren't learning. Yeah, are we you, need to change. Are you talking about school vouchers? Is that the idea? People call it vouchers because uh, vouchers have been slammed now for a generation. But really, it's about education savings accounts or tuition tax credit so that the parents can say, my public school's not meeting the needs of my child. I'm going to go to a place that meets the needs of my child. If you're focused on the needs of the child, money should follow the child. Uh, You talked about making things uh, less expensive. Does that mean... uh cutting taxes? If a big tax cut passes this year, would you look at cutting taxes again next year if you were governor? Um, If a tax cut passes this year, (laughs) is a huge if. The Hmm. Democrats in the House want nothing to do with it. The governor wants nothing to do with it. We need to look at tax policy as a way to help Minnesota families uh, with their budget instead of just the budget in St. Paul. But also, how do we attract entrepreneurs, employers, how do we retain talent? How do we keep our kids who go away to college from staying away? We need to bring them back into our state. And right now, we're very high in tax rankings across the state or across the nation. Massachusetts has a lower tax rate than we do. Iowa has lower tax rates than we do. You can look across the country and find places where it is easier to start a business, easier to keep more of your salary, and talent is moving there. People are moving there. If uh, you cut taxes, well, let's let's say, uh, let's leave the surplus out of the discussion for right now, but if you cut taxes, are you going to have to cut spending too? And have you looked at places where you would want to cut state spending? Um, I have looked at places where we want to cut state spending. For example, many of our state employees are telecommuting now. We have buildings that are verging on vacant. Let's consolidate that footprint. Let's start there. Um, Let's have the internal auditors in every agency 
do a solid accounting and have them report out are is money being spent the way the legislature deemed it instead of for example the misappropriation of funds for payments for medically assisted treatment where nobody was checking in the Department of Human Services, CCAP where nobody was checking, Feeding Our Futures where nobody was checking. Let's start there. Mm-hmm. Um, do you think you can make those cuts and still provide the services that people are used to? Um, we might not be able to provide the services people are used to, but we can provide the services people need. Needs, wants, and nice to have need to be part of the state budget discussion. And we've got a lot of nice to have. We've got a bunch of wants. But let's get back to what we need. On voting, you say you want to make it easy to vote but hard to cheat. Is there a lot of cheating going on now? Well, if we look at what the Secretary of State did by going around the legislature and changing uh, voting requirements during the pandemic, the legislature had already made adjustments for the pandemic May of 2020. The court was absolutely wrong to turn that power over to Steve Simon, and so we need to strengthen the laws to make it clear the legislature makes those decisions. Um, When people were not allowed to be on balloting boards because clerks decided they weren't going to have people on balloting boards, that was wrong. Uh, Massive um, mail-in ballots across the country less secure than an absentee ballot, obviously less secure than voting in person. And so there were challenges. We need elections we can trust. I mean, Hillary Clinton just gave a speech where she talked about 2016, where you can be the best candidate and you still, you know, have the election taken from you, I think were were the words that she used. So this is bipartisan. We need elections we can trust. We have a representative republic. We have to trust that our representatives were duly elected. So voter ID, provisional ballots, party balance on balloting boards. These are all common sense things that will help build trust on both sides of the aisle and with the public in general. Um, You know, everyone, uh, Hillary Clinton might be saying that, but former President Trump is out saying the election was stolen from him. Was it? In Minnesota, I think Joe Biden got more votes than Donald Trump did. And I would look for decisions in a court of law. You have to be able to prove something um, instead of just claiming it over and over again. Uh, Stacey Abrams did the same thing. She claims that she won. And so this is why transparency and accountability in our elections is important on both sides of the aisle. Um, People are saying that the best strategy at the convention where there are so many candidates competing is to be everyone's second choice. Do you agree with that? And and do you feel like you're in that position? I feel like I'm gaining more and more traction as we get closer to the electability conversation. More than 50% of the electorate is female. I have had the experience that so many women and families have had where my daughter was sent home from school during the pandemic. I ran the Health and Human Services Committee while she did her work next to me. There are a lot of families that went through it. I had to explain to my daughter why there was plywood on the window of our Aldi um, during the riots following the murder of George Floyd. Families have been through a lot. I walked that path with them, and I think it helps me connect with voters of Minnesota in a different way than any other candidate. And so as we move closer to the electability conversation, I'm gaining traction. Michelle Benson, thanks for coming on today. I appreciate the time, and I look forward to speaking with you again soon. Absolutely. Michelle Benson, Republican candidate for governor and a state senator from Ham Lake. This is NPR News. I'm Mike Mulcahy. We usually finish out our Friday program by talking to some local journalists about Minnesota politics. But this week I had a chance to talk to a national political analyst. Domenico Montanaro is senior political editor and correspondent at NPR. If you're a regular listener, you hear him a lot on the air here. One thing he works on now for the network is polling. And I started by asking him if if we can trust polls these days. Here's what he had to say. We're going through a process at NPR um, of having some discussions about 
putting out some guidance uh, about how we should interpret polls, how we should think about them. Um, you know, survey research is um, necessary in American culture. You know, we wouldn't have known, for example, how fast public opinion changed on same-sex marriage between 2005 and 2015 if it weren't for having good, you know, longitudinal studies, you know, research surveys that went over time, had the same kinds of questions, were matched to the census. I think where I am now much more hesitant and I've advised people at NPR is to sort of stay away from the horse race polls. Um, I just don't think they say a whole heck of a lot. I think people have to understand that there's margins of error and those are very real. So if a margin of error is three and a half percent, it means it could be seven points different. It could be three and a half points higher, three and a half points higher, three and a half points lower. And that's something that gets lost in the constant, you know, cable chatter of, you know, what's going on in a race. Now, what I try to explain to people, if someone you see is up in the conglomerate of polls by 20 points, you're pretty safe to say that that person um, has the advantage or has, appears to have the lead. Still, when it comes to attitudes, measuring against the census, um, that is where they have the most value. Well, let's talk about some specifics then. One poll you can trust is the one that was taken on Election Day 2020 when Joe Biden won with about 51% of the popular vote. And if you look now at that collection of polls, he's at around 40% approval. So what happened? What, uh, what is dragging Joe Biden down in terms of his approval rate? Yeah, so this is where surveys can actually be helpful because you can then talk about issues <laughs> and you can see why something got to where it has. And, you know, look, inflation is a real thing. I mean, what we've also seen in surveys is people's concern over inflation has really spiked over the past seven, eight months, where it wasn't the case when Biden took, it, took office. Leading up to the election, COVID, of course, was the top concern for people. And it's very difficult to you know, detangle COVID from uh, inflation, but it gives us an opportunity to talk about that in a nuanced way. Um, you know, and I, I think that what you're seeing here, and then you start to see the politics of it, where the president now is calling it, you know, Putin's gas, uh, Putin's inflation or whatever he wants to call it. Yeah. So, you know, that um, helps explain some things that are happening in the country. I, I think that he, he was dented pretty significantly in last August with the withdrawal from Afghanistan um, because uh, it just he ran as somebody who was competent and could run the government better than Trump could. And for a significant slice of independents who had turned away from Trump, they believed that. And then they really turned on Biden after uh, the withdrawal from Afghanistan. Now, we need to understand just because his numbers are underwater now doesn't mean that that's a poll against somebody who he would run against. You know, that those are different things. And, you know, we always, the cliche, the elections are choices. It's true. I mean, you know, if Biden were to run against Trump one more time, which looks like it's possible, if not probable, um, you bet those numbers are probably going to start out at 45, 45, just like every other every other thing with a point or two variation here and there because of our partisanship partisanship, and what it is. So um, yeah, I, I think that that's, uh, that's part of what's happened with him. And, and that's not my sort of, um, you know, theory on this. This is, I've talked to a lot of democratic strategists who, um, you know, are seeing that in a lot of their focus groups and their own private surveys. Mm-hmm. Well, let's talk a little bit about inflation. New numbers this week, 8.5% inflation compared to last year. That's the highest rate since 1981. It seems like a real no-win situation for any president. I mean, there's not much he can do about it right now, right? And he gets blamed either way. I think that is that I think the key one of the key things that me and my editors continue to talk about quite a bit is that there are a lot of the things that are really hurting Biden right now are out of his control. And that is incredibly frustrating for the white house and understandably. So, you know, I mean, the presidents get far too much credit and far too much blame for strong economies and the white house would, you know, talk to your blue in the face about how strong the economy is in an underlying way. I mean, we're almost at full employment. 
um, you know, for unemployment to be where it is, is really kind of astounding. Um, wages are going up, businesses are opening back up in many places. And, you know, there are different factors for why prices are going up. And uh, part of that is businesses trying to recoup losses. Part of that is because of supply chain issues. Part of that is because some places still aren't fully uh, open and, and getting their, their um, you know, their profits recovered and all that. So it's a difficult, sticky situation for this president where there are a lot of different things that are out of his control at this point. And he doesn't quite fire up, you know, a lot of his base voters uh, progressives in particular, generationally, who were all in for beating Trump, but not necessarily uh, all in for feeling inspired by a Biden presidency. And another thing he really has no control over that falls in the general area of inflation is gas prices. That seems to be killing him. Is there any way you see any of this turning around by November? Um, not, well, Okay, this November is difficult, I would think, for Democrats. I think that the landscape for Democrats in general, there's pretty much a unified you know, feeling among Republicans and Democrats that the House is going to be in Republican hands after, after the fall and that it's trending more now that the Senate is going to be in Republican hands because of the national landscape and talking about Biden's polling numbers, places like Georgia and Pennsylvania and Arizona, Wisconsin, where Biden actually had pretty good poll numbers um, at the start of his presidency, and then has really nosedived to, in all of those places, only about a third or a little more approve of the job that Biden is doing. And that just deflates your base. It's automatically difficult for a first term for a president because the party that's out of power just more easily able to fire up their voters, because they're already angry with the president, they're angry for losing the election, whether some will admit it or not. <laughs> um, but they, so it just makes it much more, it's not trivial historical points on this. It's because, you know, really their get out the vote efforts are much more difficult when you're the party in power. We've talked about some of the things the president can't control, but uh, I wonder if you think that one of the mistakes he did make was setting expectations too high. With a 50-50 Senate, it's kind of a miracle he got anything passed, isn't it? I, I 100% agree with that. I actually did a story about that a few months ago about the expectation setting that he had done. Um, and, you know, he likes to speak in grandiose ways about things. Every president wants to tout their accomplishments. I mean, President Biden and Democrats did get quite a bit done in the first year considering, you know, what the numbers are. I mean, a 50-50 Senate where legislation still needs a 60-vote filibuster-proof majority in order to get any legislation done. You know, um, President Biden has appointed more um, judges to the federal bench than any president since Reagan. 80% of those are women. Uh, 50-some percent of them are not white, uh, which is a huge contrast to what uh, President Trump did when he was in office. Um, so there's that. Of course, the almost $2 trillion uh, COVID bill and infrastructure bills, they're massive pieces of legislation that were able to be, you know, find this unique path through, um, even though the infrastructure bill was very strongly bipartisan. You know, I mean, I remember having to cover the you know, fiscal cliff negotiations between President Obama and John Boehner, as well as the debt ceiling negotiations. And they're always talking about, we're always talking about infrastructure. What Boehner's people would tell me is, you know, we just can't agree on the pay fors. We can't agree on how to pay for this thing. And somehow, you know, Biden came in with the knowing the right Republicans, understanding how to, what the pay fors were, it got done. And that's a huge accomplishment but the problem is Democrats spent so many months fighting amongst themselves about the best path forward to trying to get their social safety net bill through with the Build Back Better bill that, you know, they had a lot of fits and starts on. And, you know, it, it felt like when they got that passed that they weren't celebrating, they were kind of exhausted and relieved and were like, fine, whatever it's done. And you had a lot of disappointed people on the left. So it's, um, it's, it's a very difficult situation for you know, uh, any president to be in and to 
I think they could have done much better job of ex- of setting expectations. What about the Republicans? Do they need a strong message going into the election, or can they just point to the Democrats and say, we're not them, they caused these problems and we didn't? Well, they are certainly banking on not needing a uh, you know proactive, positive message as far as what they would do if in office. What they're busy doing right now is pointing out the deficiencies and the flaws and the vulnerabilities of the Biden administration to say, you know, Biden's in charge. Here's what inflation is, Um, you know, and then rallying the base around culture issues, um, you know, be it abortion, which has been a long time thing, or be it, um, you know, uh, transgender girls in sports and schools or, uh, you know, uh, education and empowering, quote unquote, parents, uh, which we've seen them use to fire up their voters. So, you know, you can see what the legislative priorities would be if you look at the states and the state legislatures that are controlled by Republicans, um, certainly endorsed by uh, Republican leaders, but they don't necessarily, I think it's a big open question. When we do our briefing books for after the election, on what will the Republican agenda be? It's really up in the air because they were not, they, you don't hear them talking about repealing and replacing Obamacare anymore, which was the drum that they beat for, you know, almost 50 times or more that they had tried to vote on it and uh, didn't work. And now the law is much more positive and favorable than it had been. And Obama's name is no longer associated with it. So it's become far less partisan. Uh, and it's really not the thing people are arguing about anymore, which is kind of amazing considering it's what gave rise to the Tea Party and, I would argue, uh, to President Trump being where he is uh, and uh, being able to ride that energy. What about former President Trump? Does he help Republicans or does he hurt them at this point? So what Republicans say to me privately is that every Republican senator should want President Trump's endorsement because he has such a key tie to the base. Uh, They need those voters to come out for them to vote, to be able to win, especially in these places that are all very closely divided states, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, uh, two Democratic targets. Republicans, though, need the Republican base, that Trump base, to come out to help them. At the same time, they'll say, They have to thread this needle and walk this line to run their own race, to raise their own money so that they can, in other words, try to replicate what Glenn Youngkin did in Virginia when he won the governorship there, where he accepted Trump's endorsement, but kept him at arm's length. So in a purple state, in a place where Trump maybe isn't as popular, you want the base to turn out, but you don't necessarily want Trump with you 100%, you know, uh, as the as a full fledged endorsement, I think that's the that's the the um, unicorn race that they're going to try to run in some of these places. Uh, you know, Ron Johnson in Wisconsin can't escape from Trump um, because he's one of the staunchest Trump allies, and he's fine with that. He will lean into it, and he'll take his he'll take his uh, chances with that, um, and not shy away from it. And you know, and but the thing is, with the environment being what it is as negative toward the party in power uh, with the historical nature of turning out voters, it might not even matter for Republicans. You know, they, there might be some really uh, untested candidates with checkered pasts uh, who don't run very good races and don't raise a lot of money who could just be swept over the finish line. Let me ask you a final question. This came from some of our listeners before we started. Society is so polarized, so divided, who can fix that? Can politicians do it? Can journalists do it? Is it even possible to fix? I get asked this all the time. And I, I always sound like the Lord of Darkness because I have very little confidence that people um, are sort of going to squeeze this mess back in the toothpaste tube and suddenly go you know, be open-minded and listen to each other, resort themselves to feel that, oh, I would be okay with my daughter dating somebody of a different party. I mean, those are eye-opening things when you see people saying that politics means that much to them that they wouldn't even like it if their 
daughter or son married somebody of a different political persuasion than their parent. I mean, that is not something you used to see. It's just not. And it's far more hotly polarizing now. I think until and unless you crack down on lies and uh, the inability to um, agree on the same shared set of facts, uh, as long as there is this wide cacophony of a la carte um, information ecosystem that we have, where I believe something, Link is going to tell me it's true, or Fox News is going to tell me it's true. Uh, I think it's very difficult to then change that dynamic. I mean, we all have friends and relatives who um, maybe think differently uh, than us. And, uh, you know, when people are ideological about it and aren't listening to facts and don't go about things like scientific method, right, where, oh, I have a hypothesis. I think something is like this. And then I go look into it and I realize, oh, the facts tell me otherwise. That's not what's happening now. Now people are saying, it's like this. You know, it's like that. You know, these people give me a break. And it's like, you can't combat that. Right. I mean, I think that we have to, you know, continue to show. I think that's why you've seen like through the Trump administration, for example, the Washington Post, 17 sources in a a story. I think that we have to be very careful as journalists to make sure that our facts are right, that we know the information is true, that we're saying that we independently verify the things that we put on um, and that we can back that up uh, and that the truth has to be our North Star. And I think as far as people go one-on-one, we have to continue to try to see each other's humanity. Um, there are things we all do agree on um, in you know, whether or not we want our kids to have good educations or we want them to you know, uh, live happy, healthy, successful lives. How we get there is, is I think, the, the American story. And it's become just really hotly polarizing and difficult now but i think it's more that we can see each other as people and not you know uh twitter you know reply then uh i think the better off we'll be that's domenico montanaro from npr we chatted over zoom for an npr connects event this week that's our friday program i'm mike mulcahy thanks for listening have a great weekend programming is supported by centerpoint energy's home service plus whose team of appliance and heating and cooling experts protect Minnesotans' homes by repairing, maintaining, and replacing home appliances without breaking budgets. Visit centerpointenergy.com slash HSP. I'm Mike Mulcahy. Thanks for listening to a recording of my live radio show on NPR News. If you want to catch the show live, tune in each Friday at noon. I'll be talking about what's happening at the legislature, the 2022 elections, and other things.